This is episode number 168 of the Rising Man podcast with Luke Cohen. Warriors defend the right for life to continue in a good way. Welcome back, Rising Man family, and thank you for joining me here today. Jetty Azuma, your host for the Rising Man podcast. I've got another amazing guest for you guys today, but before I get to that, I want to remind you to go to risingman.org and check out all the amazing opportunities we have for you to get more involved in the Rising Man community today. So go check it out before this episode or pause this episode right now and go check us out at risingman.org. Okay, my guest for today is Luke Cohen. Luke Cohen is a quickly rising voice of inspiration and leadership on our planet as a speaker, hardest, mentor, and egopreneur. He carries a unique multidisciplinary wisdom and service to an emerging culture on the planet, which informs all the content he creates. Since 2008, Luke has been supporting, consulting, and co-creating with movements, communities, organizations, and leaders committed to the formation of leading-edged eco-villages, educational institutes, and innovative solutions to solve our world's greatest challenges. In this episode, my brother Luke and I caught up after a few years of having not seen each other. We connected in on our background in martial arts and the importance of having a spiritual and physical practice on the road to self-mastery. We jammed on how physical breakdown and injury can be a blessing in disguise. Luke and I both told stories about severe injuries we had as adults that led to massive breakthroughs. Luke and I dropped into anger and why it's imperative to have a relationship with our anger and how that allows us to be better protectors and providers for our loved ones. Lastly, Luke issued a challenge to the warriors out there to be willing to stand up and put their lives on the line so that life on this planet may continue in a good way. Without further ado, Luke Cohen. All right, fam. I got a real one. This one goes back, way back in my history. I've known this man for a while, but haven't seen him in a bit. Mr. Luke Cohen coming in live from Bali. Good to see you, brother. Yeah, good to reunite here, bro. Love what you're doing. Heck yeah, man. Always good to reunite. We got a lot of history. We're catching up a little bit before we started recording. I'm sure that'll come through in the episode. But before we jump into anything we're going to talk about today, let me ask you this. In your opinion, what does it mean to be a man? Hmm. Yeah, to be a man in the anchored version of masculinity that I aspire to continue to embody and want to invite others into is a steward of safety and innocence and a stand for life itself. Yeah, so a man is one who brings a willingness to take a stand for life. And so life encompasses all the things that we value, all the integrity in which we can move from assertive to receptive. It encompasses that balance of being a sacred steward of, of creation of life. That's beautiful, man. I had a guest on here named Keone Hanale, and he said something similar. I think he said it means to be a protector of life, which I love the simplicity of it. I guess I've asked that question like 180 times now and gotten different answers, but I love that one, man. So tell me a little bit more. What does it mean to be a steward of life? How have you learned to be a steward and defender of life? Yeah, you know, I have a good buddy of mine that once gave me a quote. He said, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And <laughs> someone just texted me that like three days ago. I'd never heard it before. They just texted me three <laughs> days ago. Something's circulating. That really struck me as someone who has been a warrior for most of my life and the journey of going from warrior to steward. And that I believe is the evolutionary curve that we're on in the transition from toxic masculinity to stewardship, protector, guardian. And so what does it mean to be a guardian of life? A steward is that warrior energy gets 
you know, revitalized and channeled it with a different outlet. So there's elements that a lot of us bring from the warrior lineages that have been repurposed for this time. And it is to sanctify the garden. It is to steward energy. It is to protect. It is to nurture life. And so the, the healthy warrior in this iteration of that archetype is to set boundaries. You know, we're, we're not okay with certain things that are happening to our planet, to humanity. We're not okay with certain things, but we're not going into it in the same way. It's more of a stand. So like my brother, Elijah Ray gave me a cool analogy once of a, like holding a sword instead of like the sword being up, being ready to swing, you turn it from the sharp angle into the mirror. And so you're just holding it in front of you and the mirror is shining out from the heart. And that, that's sort of what I see as a guardian. It's like, I will swing my sword if I have to, but my stance is a peaceful stance of honoring and protecting life. You know, that's kind of how I look at it. And so, you know, when I, I talk about prosperity and things within my practice with my clients, it's like, it's letting go of the need to try to get and it comes into how can I give? You know, a steward is stewarding life. We, we steward prosperity. We, we adjust the garden so that the natural principles can flow. So we're not manipulating life. We're joining with it. We're flowing with it. And so that's kind of how I look at stewardship. It's like you're listening enough to life to let it inform the most appropriate response that's in alignment from that place of guardianship. So the steward and guardian are, are interconnected. One is setting the boundary and creating the protective container for the women and the children and the creation to blossom and flourish. The steward is, is listening to the nature and, and to the current of life to make adjustments so that the flourishing aspect of creation can happen. You know, it's not controlling it. It's not dictating it. It's responding, you know, like the Hawaiians listen to the currents of the water and, and use the sails. We don't create the wind, but we can navigate the sails. So that's, that's what a steward is from my perspective. Yeah, man. Let's talk about warriorship for a second. I know a lot of people throw around the word warrior. I throw around the word warrior and I think that it's, it's just something that we do, right? There's something, I know myself when I was a boy growing up, there was something about seeing that warrior spirit, whether it was in a movie or whether you you know saw it in someone else, there's something to this day, I still love watching samurai movies and movies with heroic characters like that because especially when I was younger, when I didn't have that voice, didn't have that confidence to speak out, when it was still so scary for me to do that because I was afraid of what the consequences would be, what the repercussions would be. I would be inspired. I would draw inspiration and fantasize about being a warrior. I think about movies like Braveheart, William Wallace, Maximus from Gladiator, just these guys who weren't afraid to stick their neck out because they stood for something. And I think that's an important topic for us to speak about, especially our generation of men. You know, we're not, we're not children anymore. We can't lean on that excuse. We can't lean on all the excuses that have been contrived for the millennial generation. They're, they just, we can't anymore. We can't afford to, it's on us. We're, I'm in my thirties now, man. You know, like we're, we have to be able to first recognize and identify what we stand for. I think that's one place that men kind of fail to launch is they don't have enough life experience to have discovered what they care about, what matters to them, or they're looking for somebody to tell them. Cause that's what our parents did, you know, that's what we relied on our parents and our and adults for. But to me, that's the first step into adulthood is figuring out, well, what do you care about? What do you care about enough to take a stand for, to be uncomfortable for? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Warriorship, man. It's in my bones. <laughs> for me, it really started with the martial arts. You know, when I was eight years old, I don't know where this came from. It must've been some kind of part of my old soul. I literally went up to my parents when I was eight. I was like, okay, time to, I'm eight years old. It's time to send me to the Shaolin Temple. And they were like, what are you talking about? I hadn't seen any movies. It was like, 
DNA, soul DNA, like, yo, it's your eight years old time to go train. <laughs> and my dad, my parents were like, where the heck, like, did you see a movie? Like, what the heck are you talking about? I was like, no, it's like, I'm eight. Set me off. You know? and, like, <laughs> and my dad put me in karate at the YMCA. And I remember being like, this is the wackish thing I've ever seen. Like, and I came home and I was like, this will not do. And they were like, okay, they're a little freaked <laughs> out. And my dad found me like a Lakit Aikido dojo. And so I got enrolled in Aikido when I was eight years old. And I stuck with it for about three years and then, you know, life took its turn. And then I eventually got back into martial arts after a series of really unsafe situations. As a male growing up in New York, I was involved with gangs and graffiti and all these things. And I got jumped really bad, like a number of times where I had my jaw broken. I got put in the hospital and it was like, yeah, I need to, I need to know how to defend myself. And so it came from a survival instinct. But as I got into the spirituality of martial arts and really Bruce Lee was one of my like, Asked, you know, like he was one of the archetypes that embodied that warrior energy. And so it became this journey of self-discipline, of, of self-mastery, of a path of self-mastery. And I didn't have that. My, my father didn't model to me mastery. He didn't model to me discipline. I had to impose that on myself. Like something deep within me was like, yo, I need this structure that you're not giving me, but this warrior path gives that to me. And so it was a way for me to start to to claim like a way to assert myself in the world where actually I just felt super unsafe as a man for a long time, being one of the white kids on the basketball courts, like those, all those unsafe situations. It's like, it was literally survival and it went from survival into a higher path at one point. I remember when it clicked over and I started reading some of the Taoist, you know, expressions from Bruce Lee and like these deeper mystical codes. I was like, Oh, there's something here for me. And the martial art that I studied at was deeply esoteric and had all these like, you know, I started having these crazy lucid dreams and, and there was like a lot of esoteric elements involved in that particular martial art. Which one were you practicing? So I studied a martial art called Vada, which means to slay or to kill in open hands with set in Sanskrit. And it's, it's shrouded in a lot of legend and it journeyed from the high Himalayas of, of India, supposedly into China and into all these parts of the world, but it like lost its source from India. And so I was studying with a lineage where my teacher's uncle was the founder of it in the US and learned directly from a lineage holder. And he was like a plumber from Staten Island that was vacationing in Florida and saw this skinny Indian guy like breaking railroad blocks with the blade of his hand. And he was like, whoa, you, you need to teach me. And the guy taught him every summer for like a number of years and, until he got his Maha Master initiation. And then the guy disappeared. He freaking disappeared after he gave him the final initiation. So we don't, we didn't know where it came from. It was like deeply mystical stuff. And so I got really deep, like anything I've given myself, that warrior energy is, is like full commitment. It's like you lose yourself in what you give yourself to. And I lost myself in the martial arts and in the way that I trained and I pushed myself really hard and it didn't have the integration of the healing path. So a lot of the Indian martial arts, actually have the balance that like Kalari, the Southern styles of Indian martial arts, they have Ayurveda and there's this, this yoga side of it where they're learning the Marma points to heal as well. And the teachers like in that system of like, okay, you need to go off and spend two years massaging people and healing them. And then you've mastered this, you know, and you need to go train and fight in the ring. Like, so there was this integrative side. And I think like, this is a cool story because it led to my full physical breakdown. Like I had a healing crisis when I was 22 and like my agile young body gave out like completely. I burnt out. And I think the martial art that I was practicing, the, the like repetitive stress movements, because there's all these whipping punches and whipping movements. And also not knowing that I had a hypersensitive nervous system and the lifestyle of like drinking and doing illicit drugs, it all caught up to me. 
And so my breakdown from that martial art actually led me onto the healing path to balance myself. And so for me, that warrior energy, there's an integrated side of it, and then there's an unintegrated side of it. And I'll just pause there because I know you got some stuff to say or maybe some things to question that I could rant for a while on this topic. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, no, as well, it's well. It's great because I love that we went the martial arts route. I'm a martial artist myself, primarily capoeira. I've got a back boxing and a little bit of wrestling background. I took my first BJJ class a few months ago and then they shut everything down again. So so I understand when you say the spirituality of martial arts, I understand that too. When I was a kid, I did karate when I was a kid for a while as well. And back then it was about just like kicking ass and breaking stuff, right? It's, it's like, it's, like it's, it's what boys do, right? We want to know what am I capable of? How can I generate power and what can I use it for? It's a very natural thing. You know, that, maybe that's another conversation. A lot of times we try to tame that out of our boys, which I ain't about that either. But just in the conversation dialogue around martial arts, man, when you say the spirituality of martial arts, being able to integrate peacefulness and to understand peace is, for me, what's been the, the ultimate destination through the martial arts, right? The martial arts is not about kicking ass and, and annihilation. It's about creating peace and resolving conflict. And I think that's something that, something that gets lost, especially... I'm actually a fan of the USC because I just appreciate the diversity of martial arts. But when you really look at it for what it is, it's combat. It's purely combat. There's virtually no spirit in it from what I can see. And I study a lot of these guys. I hear them talk and I feel like it's gotten lost. So I think, and a lot of that represents some of this other masculinity that people are not on board with. You know, I know you said toxic masculinity before. I, I'm not really on board with that terminology either myself. It's definitely incomplete. It's we'll definitely immature. The unintegrated masculine. Well, there you go. So yeah, man, I, there's an element of being a martial artist and knowing that I can take care of myself and I can protect my family that has given me personally more confidence to speak out. Because the biggest fear I had about speaking out when I was younger was I'm a small dude, small in stature. I've always been the smallest. Yeah. And I'm going to call attention to myself. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I don't want to say anything that's going to rock the boat because I'm going to get fucked up. I can relate to that. <laughs> so yeah, man, I'm interested in going a little bit deeper into this because I, I didn't know we were going to go here, but obviously just given the nature of the conversation, how is this relevant to other men? Maybe even just our generation of men who are finding our voice, who are finding what we believe in and what we want to fight for and stand for. There's a couple of things that came to heart and mind when you were sharing a little bit about your experience and, you know, the UFC and some of you know, the male ego that's in that combative thing. The thing that I learned about when I was training in martial arts at that stage in my life, where I was very much involved in that culture of self-destruction, because there's a deep self-destructive element of there. And when there's that much self-destruction, there's a coping mechanism to the deeper trauma that exists in our lineages, in our emotional experiences, from our upbringings and our soul's history. And so for me, it was like, I was training to be a UFC fighter. This was before it was popular. I was like, I want to get into the ring. Like, this is why I'm part of what I was doing. And it was, I think I was trying to prove something to myself, but essentially there was so much self-destructiveness, like my masculine ego needed that external conflict to validate its existence at that point. And because I wasn't fully in my purpose and had an authentic relationship to the nature of existence, that's how it manifested then. And when I had that healing crisis and my body broke down and I started to reconcile the karma of the unintegrated masculine warrior energy from incarnational perspective, like all these lifetimes I had lived in that energy, there was a quote that came to me during that time when I was like, I was completely depressed because I was walking with a cane and I couldn't play basketball or run anymore. And that was like my healthy outlet because I didn't actually get satisfaction from drinking and doing 
cocaine or doing those things, like nothing, there was no actual fulfillment there, but I actually got fulfillment from running and training and doing martial arts. And so this quote came to me is that, you know, what is more great or more powerful, a man who conquers a hundred men or a man who conquers himself. And that is when my perspective and my reality completely shifted around what I had been up to and my why and what was alive for me in that experience. And I was like, oh my God, I need to master myself. This is not about conquering some external enemy anymore. I need to conquer my own demons. And so I think the path of the warrior as relative for the masculine out there is when we confront our demons and we start to transmute the self-hate or the we actually get honest about the trauma that's stored in the nervous system and, and what we had to survive our reality because the masculine paradigm that we inherited is inherently competitive and is inherently woven with war. Like there's so much war, like you said, combat, it's etched into our society's fabric. And we go, our only rite of passage as modern men, most of us is we bleed ourselves. Like women bleed in one way and then we get bled through the street. We get into a fight. We get our tooth knocked out or we get our, our lip busted. But that rite of passage is a default of not having the tribal customs of the village initiating us to our place within creation, our place within the village. So we default into that collective narrative and then we're thrusted into this unsafe world where we have to size up other men and the brotherhood of the camaraderie is only coming through this pre-warring culture, this warring culture. Yeah. There's another layer to it that I discovered myself. And it was for the longest time, I thought that it was purely that I was just afraid of what would happen to me, that I literally I would be, could be physically harmed if I stepped out, if I stood for something. And then when I was, man, I must've been 23 years old. I was living in New York City. And I was out one night with some friends and we landed in a speakeasy. We were just, we were just going to use the bathroom and then go home. It's one of those nights, right? Like it's just, we're just about to go home, of course. And went into the bathroom, me and the, and my buddy that I was with, he went in and there was this super drunk dude just like leaning up against the wall. And he was, you know, like very, you know, very bent, you know, he's clearly not here. And so I stepped around him to go use the restroom, went to use the restroom. And then I came and had the, he was literally in my path when I had to come back. So I stepped around him again. And as I stepped past him, he felt a push, like kind of like a jolt in my back. So I was confused, turned around, looked at him and I said, did you push me? Like, what, what was that about? And he started giving me the business. Like you stepped on my shoe, something stupid. Right. And I'm like, well, listen, man, I don't, I don't think I stepped on your shoe, but Okay. And then before I even knew it was happening, he popped me right in the face. And it was so shocking. I was like, did you just punch me in the face? And then he goes to come back and hit me again. And in that moment, I don't know if you've experienced this when you've been in altercations like this yourself, but I experienced for the first time where my energy, it took over. I didn't even know I wasn't making a decision. My body was just responding. And before I knew it, I grabbed him, swung him across the room. Lights went out. I heard a big crash. Lights come on and he crashed through the sink and he was bleeding everywhere. It happened in a split second. And what I learned about myself was I wasn't so much scared about what would happen to me. Now I was scared of what would I do to someone else because I was never taught how to experiment and explore that energy. Yes. And I think that's another thing that's not spoken about enough when we talk about warriorship is the fear of our own power. The fear of, because that's a real deal. You know, we talk about anger a lot for men. That energy is so massive. And if we could learn to direct and channel it down a narrow straw, like a coffee stirrer, like just like mm, funnel that energy down, it could be so creative and constructive if we could learn to do that. But that takes lots of practice and lots of discipline. And I think it's, there's generations of men 
who never learned how to do that. And therefore, there just aren't as many teachers, not as many opportunities to learn how to be with that. So we default to the alternative, which is, you know, pick up a newspaper and read the headlines. Yeah, powerful. The recognition and full acknowledgement that we wield the power to both create and destroy is one of the most sacred things that we have to reconcile with as, as men, to really own our destructive power and our creative power. And until we fully own our, our destructive power, we can't actually channel our creative power. Like it's never going to be actualized to its full potential until we recognize the shadow and the light of both sides of it. And that's something that I can really relate with when I've gotten into altercations when I was young. There was a purity in my heart that didn't really want to cause harm. I just wanted to feel safe. And so when I got into fights or things like that, I held back a lot. I just wanted to subdue to that sort of Aikido you know, orientation of just like, I just want to de-armor you and destabilize you so that you don't call harm. but I actually don't want to hurt you. And when I started to recognize that part of my nature, there was a peacekeeper energy that was alive for me of like, I like saved a girl from getting raped in college. And I, I was, you know, fraternities are more like gangs in my school. And so I found myself a lot of times getting between people, breaking up fights and using my power and asserting it in a way that of like, you're not going to make me the target of your unexpressed pain. And I'm also not going to let you hurt this other person that I care about. Like you both have value, like no, and just like step in and, and kind of break up the energy. And so it's interesting what you're naming around that destructive power, man. Like it's such a real thing for us as men. What has been in your experience of like, of working with the energies of anger and rage and helping men, you know, as we're both in this work, you know, what are the rewards that come from reconciling with that shadow? So many. I mean, right off the bat, especially if we're just, let's just talk about anger for a second. I've talked about this here on the podcast many times before, but to reemphasize, I don't trust somebody who hasn't gotten to know their anger. I think it's a relationship that we get to have. If you don't have a relationship with your anger, then you can't be trusted because it's literally like having a loose cannon could overtake your reality. Absolutely, man. And that's what I'm talking about when I say pick up the newspaper, read a headline. These men that we see in these stories over and over again, the guy who shot up his family, you know, went in and whatever, right? To me, it's a reflection of deep, long-standing pain, first of all, but then also an inability. I don't know what the word would be. Someone who doesn't know how to have a relationship with that anger, who doesn't know how to contain it, who doesn't know how to redirect it. And so when we talk about the benefits of this, man, I mean, just not having to be at the mercy of your emotional state, right? But identifying it and recognizing, calling it, naming it as anger, and then having an outlet that is, again, not destructive, that is constructive somewhere else that you can, can place it. There's a lot of really healthy things that you can do. And I mean, beyond just the individual journey, it's also a generational journey, my own exploration of my anger has overlapped with me being a father to a son and witnessing his raw experience of his emotions and his experience of witnessing me in my emotions and being able to discover that simultaneously, but also mentor him a bit and, and encourage him to feel his emotions, feel his pain, recognize, learn, connect with the different emotions that he has so that he knows them so that they're not shocking. The first time I felt anger when I was 16, I was scared because no one around me knew what to do. 
my parents were like, calm down. <laughs> when someone's in a fit of rage, you can't just like, oh, let me just, yeah, let me just hit that switch and Suddenly calm down. Suddenly suppress it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, turn it off, please. Turn yeah, it off. Yeah. Where's the off I'm button? I'm uncomfortable, so you need to change. <laughs> right. Which, again, is generational, right? You know, because yeah. they didn't know how to do it. But that's probably the biggest benefit is that we can do better for the ones who are coming after us. Our children, yeah. our nieces, nephews, all of them. We are missing the language of emotional intelligence from the modern world. I th- this is something that I'm a huge stand for in being someone that's here to create new culture on the planet and something I talk a lot about and have been talking a lot more about through the lens of shadow work because I see this massive gap in the spiritual community and entrepreneurial communities around addressing the power and reality of emotion and the lack of emotional language in our culture. And this shaming and suppression and like spiritual ideologies that come from the avoidance of and lack of acknowledgement of wounded feelings and the nature of getting into touch with that work. We just don't have the context for it, especially on a peer-to-peer level. Like some of us that have been doing this work, we tend to do it with mentors and healers and elders. And, you know, for me, the process of creating that as a culture for our peers It's actually scarier to let the mask down and have some real ownership over our emotions in connection with the peers. And this is where I think men's work is emerging on the planet at such a powerful level, because that's like one example of where peers can de-armor and de-mask themselves and have a big reveal of some of the deeper pain that's actually happening. There's spaces and contexts I've seen that are pretty progressive where it's happening with men and women, but that's few and far between as a society as a whole right now. We don't have that. We're just passing on the same shame, blame, guilt, you know, suppression, projection, wrongmaking, you know, all the games that go on around emotional pain. Yeah. And another one that just came up for me since we were talking about martial arts is unhealthy male competition. You know, the ways that we've competed with each other over time and the contrast of being able to get back to hunting together comes online for me. I grew up as an athlete, super competitive, man. And a lot of people wouldn't know it until you turn it on, right? Until you like, I'm not a basketball player, but you throw a basketball in between us and I'm coming. And a lot of guys are like that too. There's almost this, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but we sort of learned that we had to subdue our competition because of the labels or how we're defined or categorized if we're competitive as men and what the result is, right? Competitive men, it ends in something negative, right? Something bad's going to happen. <laughs> something bad is going to happen, right? So, I mean, a lot of, I mean, we talk about men's work. A lot of the work that I love is when men get to experiment with pushing up their energy against each other, you know, in a physical way, right? And obviously in a safe way, but in the simplest way of getting back to wrestling, like we used to do as kids, oftentimes I'll ask men, I was like, when was the last time that you full on wrestled another man? Have you even done that as an adult? And a lot of times guys are like, I haven't done that since I was a kid. Cause at some point it transcends into that unsafe territory where suddenly there's nobody to, there's nobody to oversee. There's nobody to guide or direct or hold down that space. So we stopped doing it because it led to trouble. And I think that's another area that a lot of men need to become familiar with because here's the other thing. You go and you wrestle somebody and either you come out on top or you don't. And there's something to learn from both sides of that. The competitiveness that comes up in you that wants to win so badly, but then what happens when you don't win? There's lessons in there that so many people aren't getting because we're not willing to go to that edgy space. Totally. Yeah, I remember hearing a Joe Rogan podcast talking about like, MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and like, you know, having to tap out, you put yourself in there, you get humbled and that humility forges some awareness. You know, I think that 
like for me, just because I've had a lot of injuries, I haven't been able to spar at the same level or enjoy that at the same level. Like my healing journey has been really unique and where I've needed to be self-contained with my own energy that intermixing it in that way actually it doesn't feel good for my system, but I'm just now getting back into like, like I'm playing squash and surfing and things like that, that feel really great for me. Whereas I had to go from that original injury, I had to go deep into a healing path for a while. And that healing path brought me much deeper into like the spiritual dimensions of life through shamanism and other like healing modalities. And then it's been like kind of a full circle of coming back into the body. And so the way that I like to do that is push hands like Tai Chi became the replacement martial art of my older martial art. I had to slow down. I was too fiery. I was too yang. And slowing down and coming more inward was what I needed to balance. And so like, I've taught this to men and I found it like a safer, healthier way to be more hyper aware of that egoic part that wants to just win. And because when you go into that energy, you actually throw yourself off balance. So the, the push hands is actually a really cool way of seeing where is the iron sharpens iron in here where we're both benefiting from the dance of being in connection right now. If I try to get hyper competitive, actually the energy of the push hands reveals that as a weakness, you'll fall over, you'll get pushed over. And so that style for me has become so enjoyable because it really asks that the spirit of both men meet and dance and use the tension of that subtle competitive and real competitive energy, but at a point where it's like naturally has to stay in balance. Like it can't tip over because that actually is where like if you step into ego, that's the moment you lose. And so it's a different gauge. Whereas wrestling, there's a little bit more of the primal body involved. And so like you can go full primal and like dominate the other person and like potentially hurt them or like, you know, tip over into that primal energy. And that can actually hurt the trust between the brothers. So like I've seen it work and I've also seen it actually not work in the context because especially if one person doesn't have the discipline or doesn't have that awareness of seeing the other as reflection and not the object of, I need to dominate in order to feel valuable, then it, it can actually get ugly. I mean, you're absolutely right too. I think that's why a lot of people avoid it. And, you know, shout out to my bro, Trevor Spring. He's been on the show here before. I don't know if you know Trevor, but he has a thing called Wild and Wise and he works with Sacred Sons. And he has a really beautiful workshop that walks you through the different levels of engagement. And by the end of two hours, we're, you know, wrestling each other basically, right? But walking up to that point and getting to explore, because if you just say, hey guys, we're going to wrestle, let's go. Like, you know, three, yeah. two, one, take off. No container, no agreements. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's like, we're just, we're asking for the instinctual animal primal instincts to come online. Whereas contrasting that with the conversation about martial arts and really making a journey and a path out of the embodiment of our power, you know, knowing and recognizing how you can exert and assert yourself physically. And I think that's actually one of the biggest pieces that's missing in personal development in general, but especially men's work is the embodiment piece. You know, really taking things into our body and learning how to master our body. There's so much, I mean, I'm guilty of it too, man. I mean, here we are on a podcast. There's not a lot of embodiment in a podcast. We're talking about things. It's a very intellectual <laughs> exercise. <laughs> However, you know, it's essential that we all are practicing being in our bodies and learning how to be in these vehicles because that 
it translates, it crosses over into these other things we've spoken about. Taking a stand, using your voice powerfully. The people who can use their voices the most powerfully also are clearly anchored in their bodies. Like, somebody can say the right, the same words, but if you're not embodied and grounded and centered in yourself, they don't carry. You know, speaking of speaking out, <laughs> by the time people hear this episode, your latest spoken word piece is going to be making its rounds across the globe. So I want to ask you a little bit about what was that journey like for you? And, and tell us a little bit about the piece, first of all, and what that journey was like for you to take such a bold step out into your truth. Yeah. So the name of the piece is You Need to Hear This. I channeled the piece after George Floyd was murdered last year. And... I saw a lot of people go into reaction, this wellspring of trauma surfacing through the collective. And I really listened. I was like, what's authentically mine to do? Like not from an impulsive place. I like to listen. I like to sit and be like spirit. Just like with Standing Rock, I wasn't guided to go physically, but to support in other ways. If I had gone from my personality, I would have brought myself there. But actually what was being asked of me by life was to hold a different role within what was emerging. Same thing with this. I went like my warrior wanted to charge in and confront the system in a certain way, but life was like, you need to channel this energy into art and you need to start interviewing people of black and indigenous leadership and get them on your show, you know? And so like, that's where my energy naturally went. And so when I channeled the piece, I was like, oh my goodness, like, like what came through me was like, I was sharing with you before this call was this journey of like through the wound of racism and oppression into colonization, into the core of separation on our planet, around the loss of indigeneity and loss of ancestral and tribal customs, and sort of this core wound that actually lives in the heart of humanity, that we're living in a colonized world, and that if you were to actually trace, all of our ancestors were doing similar things. We were around the fire. We had techniques for healing trauma. We had ways of bonding. We had rites of passage into adulthood. We had ways of prayer that were non-dogmatic that allowed a direct connection. And there was an inclusion of both the mother and the father. In the post-colonial world, we've lost the timelessness of our eternal nature that was nurtured by those customs and the severance from our ancestral wisdom traditions and put it into a hyper-masculine. So there's the loss of the mother there's just the father as this formless thing. And then now form has this other, then you have the scientism, the drawing out of spirit from matter. Now matter is dead. And so this loss of indigeneity and these indigenous wisdom uh, value systems that actually are essential for us to survive as a species have been lost. And so somehow I was able to address race and go into that sort of core mythos because right now the black nation, as I call them, you know, they've been the most recent under attack. And it's tied to then indigenous and then back through indigeneity, the loss of indigeneity as a species back through, like I, I kind of go into the piece around the, you know, the Roman empire wiping out the Druids because people don't know that we all have that indigeneity. Like in America, all the Europeans that came over, they've been so uprooted from their core traditions. There's no even concept of an ancestor. It's not even in the value system, but the ancestors are still living in the presence of you know, those African lineages, it's still there. There's still spirit, there's still power there. That's where it needed to start. And I was really torn up about being a white person and speaking this poem. And my brother Ika, who is a Jamaican descent, but grew up in racist Australia, you know, it was like the perfect person. He's like, you know, he heard it and got chills through, you know, his body was like, bro, we need to put this out together. I want to direct this for you. Like, if it just stays in your notebook, it's not going to help anybody. I, I, I like, let's do this. And so 
he called me up as a black man to like bring this message out. And the process of filming it was so confronting because I started to unearth the victimization of those experiences throughout my lineages, you know, the Holocaust and the Jewish timelines, you know, the Celtic and the Druid. These are things that I've worked on on myself and my ancestral healing over 16 years. And yet there was this really deep pain point for me to stand as a mystic, as a bard, as a messenger and speak this message into the collective and, you know, transmute a lot of victimization around the fear of being made wrong and shadow projection that would come. And like also the powers that be the thing, you know, the energies that have been trying to squash indigeneity and unearth people, disconnect them from each other, disconnect them from source, disconnect us from our, our indigenous heritages as a humanity. And the divide and conquer that has happened as a result of that in this contemporary world that we're living in, we're living in a, a time of a war on consciousness. We're living in World War III. It's just a different kind of war. It's not what we've seen in the past. And yet all the karma and all the unresolved pain is up for us to review and to look at and to heal right now. And so this piece goes right to the core of separation on our planet. It speaks right into the heart of where this actually all stems from. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing this piece because it's clear that there's a lot that you've woven into it and particularly the piece about how we all come from land-based, ritual-based, initiation-based peoples. Wherever you go, every continent, every culture, as, as far back as you can go, we all have these rights that have been lost. And I know I've spoken about it here before as well, but I'll say it again. I personally have experienced a lot of just pain, just grief. Really, it's grief at what was lost when I was aware enough to recognize that I lost so much rich culture when my ancestors, my relatives came to this country from where they came from. And recognizing that so many of us are the product of that, we're the product of immigration from one place to another, and that in order to assimilate and survive, there was a conscious decision that those ancestors of ours made to release and let go of. And that just that hurts to recognize that there was something that was lost. And in the same note, there's also this beautiful reawakening and reintroduction of initiation and rites of passage into our culture and society. And it's clear that that's what's being asked for, especially in this dialogue around masculinity and male leadership, you know, men showing up to be who we are here to be for our people requires that we reintroduce this to our culture, to our way of being. Otherwise, we just, we get the same result and we just repeat it from one generation to the next. Yeah. The whole idea of a lot of these indigenous value systems is for seven generations. And so that's not just seven generations forward, it's seven generations back, where we are the ones being invited to clean up the ancestral pain and trauma that has been passed on to us through our epigenetics. And that's actually the point that we're on as a planetary culture right now is that we're at a crossroads where we can go into a false time matrix of avoiding the healing of epigenetic trauma and the manipulation of our DNA and where we are going to be forced into having to relate with technology in a way where we're losing that direct connection to our mother earth as a living consciousness, because that's where the severing of the persecution of indigenous culture was designed to uproot us from that pathway of understanding. The other pathway is that of healing that epigenetic trauma and where we unlock our true potential as divine beings, as consciousness, as beings infused with the laws of creation, of creation and destruction. And like We literally get to wield high levels of power 
when we cross a certain threshold in our healing journey of cleaning up those ancestral pain of reawakening who we are as beings out of a deep sleep. And it's touchy because like some of these concepts are like really can be really far out to people that haven't touched this work. I think it's really important to look at what is the crossroads that we're at right now as a species. We're at this tipping point right now where we need to get on board with Mother Earth and to heal these great divisions between continents and cultures and peoples if we're going to survive overall as a human race. Because the alternative of being controlled and manipulated and suppressed and you know subduing our, our spirit to comply for the sake of survival, like some kind of menial survival. But yeah, that's my stand for life is no, it's like we have to confront the fear of death and actually deeper confront the fear of living fully because the fear of death is what's allowing so many to be controlled right now. And the warriors need to stand up and be willing to die for all of life. And once we're that willing to die for all of life, we actually don't have to experience that generational loss that we've experienced. Like, like my ancestors were marched into gas chambers and then in my soul's journey, as I've been other things and, and then a white body. And I know that that's my truth. I don't lead with that, but I can say that here. I know the other atrocities that I've experienced throughout time and where this timeline is where we need to make our stand. And we need to make our stand as peaceful warriors. We need to make our stand as passionate advocates for all of life. And if we don't acknowledge that part of our warrior that's willing to die for all of life, for all of creation, then we can't actually live fully. We can't come into our stewardship fully. Yeah. And we know that fear is a function of control. Fear is a function of directing people the way you want them to go and fear of death, man. I mean, just look at our healthcare system, everything that's happening with COVID, right? The perpetuation of fear and even convincing people that we should desire to live and live longer and look younger for longer. This The whole culture, man, around avoiding death and delaying death, it's keeping us, like you said, because in delaying death or fearing death. We're not actually living. Well, we're not actually living. <laughs> we're also not accessing that full power that you just spoke about. About, right? You said to be willing to lay it all on the line, to not be so afraid of death, because you have to move past the fear of death in order to really engage with and access your full power. Because it's only once you're willing to step into that territory that real power and real influence can be had. And this you know? is why there's been a war waged on consciousness, because through the certain rituals, through the unique paths of spirituality that are available, because every spirituality that exists on the planet is available to us. We access that undying aspect of our being. We get in contact with our spirit, with our soul, and there's a release of the fear of death. As you know, through these traditions, we die before we die. We confront the false identity structures that have held us in this illusion of safety and this illusion of separation. And when we tap into that, we become more powerful co-creators. And when we do that, the powers that were, that want control over our planet, cannot suppress because if enough of us are awake and alive in our full co-creative power as divine beings, in the knowing that we exist beyond this body and this mind, and will continue to exist, therefore, our choices are going to be informed from a different space because we've gotten contact with that undying aspect of ourselves. Whereas a lot of people are, are living in a context and an experience of being identified with the mind and the ego and the personality as who they are when there's so much more than that. And this war on spirituality and this war on consciousness is very intentionally trying to sever people from having that authentic connection and contact with the part of their spirit and soul. You know, that's the game changer. That's when the timelines shift forever. When we get in contact with that deep truth of who we really are as beings. So what's the rallying cry? 
what's the message you have for the men out there, the warriors that have been lying dormant that are waking up right now that you want to make sure you convey before we wrap up? As we know, purpose, we cannot live in the full integrity of, of our stewardship as men unless we're showing up for our purpose. So find the courage to commit to your purpose at the next level, like whatever that is for you, brothers, is to really, really step into the next level of your purpose and not postponing it, not making excuses, not finding ways to avoid it, but making that your number one priority. And then everything else falls into alignment from there. The partnership, the love, the prosperity, the health, all those things you know, are meant to be in orbit around your purpose as a primary focus. Mm. Heck yeah, man. Well said. Well, it's been awesome, bro. I told you, I didn't know where we were going to go. <laughs> and, and we went there. We did go there. Really powerful stuff, man. Before I let you go, a couple quick rapid fire questions, and then you can tell everybody where to check out the goods. So what's one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18? Yeah, if I could speak to my 18-year-old self, I would remind him of the depth of importance of self-love and self-nurturing as a practice. There's no weakness involved in that, through the journey of truly loving ourselves is what we're here to master as beings. I love it. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Yeah, I think honesty. You know, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest with each other. We need to be honest with creation. We need to be honest with our communities, with our peers. If there's a lack of transparency or a lack of honesty, it actually hurts our spirit. And so the most important, I think, yeah, value or quality is honesty. You can fool the outside, but you can't fool careful creator. <laughs> so the more honest we can get, the more we're in alignment will come. Good stuff. So where can people find you, follow you, go check out, you need to hear this, get laid out there for us, man. Yeah. It's all at Luke Cohen, L-U-K-E-K-O-H-E-N on Instagram. I share a lot of inspiring content. The video will be up there with subtitles and text animation. And on YouTube, it's, it's just the raw format with no subtitles. So yeah, you can find my YouTube channel through my Instagram. It should probably still be up there as I'm trying to move that whole thing forward. And then same thing with Facebook and website. It's all L-U-K-E-K-O-H-E-N. Excellent, bro. We'll make sure we put it up in the show notes. And man, thank you for getting on here and sharing your wisdom, dropping in. Beautiful stuff, man. I really enjoyed it. It's great to reconnect with you. It's been a while and I'm glad to see how you've transformed, man. I could really see you were already a badass dude when I met you. And <laughs> it's clear that you're just continuing to walk that path. So, you know, deep oh, bows, man. man, a lot of respect. Likewise, reflected and received and love that. You know, I wanted to weave this into our story today to the end that Jared and I met around the sacred fire. That's how we first connected. And so to be around, you know, this fire of men's work, full circle, feels really good, man, that we're tending that fire together still. Heck yeah, bro. We got this. Much love, man. Good to have you here. And we'll, uh, we'll look forward to tracking you down for next time. Sounds great. Blessings, everybody. Aloha. All right, fam. Remember to go to risingman.org to check out the latest and greatest things we've got going on in the Rising Man community, including links and resources in the show notes for this episode and each and every other episode of the podcast. Please subscribe and follow us wherever you're listening to us and check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement. Go over to YouTube and check out our YouTube channel if you haven't already, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement and subscribe to us there as well. Shout out to my power squad, Sean, Rowan, Julian, Ryan, Mark, and Kyle. Much love to you guys. Appreciate everything that you guys do. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.